a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. We're talking today about the future of the Commonwealth for good reason. Uh, (laughs) Brexit is looming. The state of the world politics. Does the Commonwealth matter anymore? You know, there's a myriad of reasons we're talking about this, Keith. Yeah. Absolutely. So the Commonwealth consists of 53 countries. So it's pretty well a quarter of the world's uh, total number of countries. It contains two and a half billion people. So that's, uh, and they've only got seven billion on the planet. So two and a half are within the Commonwealth. And it contains 20% of the world's land area. So in one sense, you'd have to say, well, the Commonwealth is very significant. Look at who's involved in it. But then when you actually try to work out, well, what has been the impact of the Commonwealth over the years, over the decades, particularly in the last 70 years since it became uh, created, you'd have to say it's actually very difficult to work out where the Commonwealth has been effective. And my thinking on this has been shaped by a new book by a guy called Philip Murphy called The Empire's New Clothes, The Myth of the Commonwealth. So this is a guy who's a Commonwealth historian but he's actually writing a book in response to the Brexit vote in 2016. Because during that lead-up to the Brexit vote, people were saying, well, we don't need to be in the European Union. We can re-establish our links with the Commonwealth. And so what Murphy has done is to look at the, the capacity to reinvigorate the Commonwealth. And he's just simply saying, look, I don't think the Commonwealth can be reinvigorated. It's not a good alternative to the European Union. It's a pretty old school organisation. It's not an organisation. What is it? What do you you say? Well, well, that's in the book. Um, Is it an organisation or an organism? In other words, is it just simply a loose configuration of people who who are brought together? And, and, yeah, for this generation it feels like it's just people are disconnected. It's like no one even cared when the Commonwealth Games were on the television. That's right. So the Commonwealth Games are not particularly significant. There is a Commonwealth education scheme and that's the result I'm in Australia because it enables people who are within the Commonwealth to do postgraduate studies in other countries. That's right. You're a Brit. I'm a Brit. (laughs) So I came out here under the Commonwealth Scholarship Plan in the same way you have Australians who go to study in England under that Commonwealth Scholarship Plan. You've got Canadians who go to England and you've got people in Britain who go to Canada, etc. So at the agency level, there are various bits and pieces that I think are doing reasonable work. The Commonwealth Partnership for Technology Management, with which I've been associated, that's based in London. That was formerly part of the Secretariat, but is now a standalone organisation. And that's to do with um, the transfer of technology within Commonwealth countries. And the particular beneficiaries in all these negotiations have been the countries in Africa. And, of course, Africa is the continent to keep an eye on. You know, we talk a lot about the rise of China and then the rise of India. And then after India, we'll get Africa. Certainly by the end of this century, there'll be more people in Africa than in either India or China. So the people are growing rapidly. They're very smart in terms of information technology. ABC TV, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Four Corners, recently had a program dealing with scammers based in uh, West Africa. Saw that. Yeah. So they're, they're scammers. We all know about the Nigerian scam, which is whereby people get sent messages saying, oh, your uncle in Lagos has just died. Give us your bank account details and we'll pay 
your bequest into into your bank account and then they empty your bank account. Now the scammers are super sophisticated. These are young Africans who know their way around the internet and so what they're doing is they're finding lonely old women and some lonely old men and then befriending them on the internet and taking the money off them. So it shows how, from the African point of view, they have been able to get their head around technology for good or ill. Another example, one of my favourite examples, is the way in which in Africa it's now possible um, where people can do a lot of their banking online. So uh, M-Pesa, which is the banking system in East Africa, is, is more sophisticated than anything that we have here in Australia. So the Africans are really running ahead of this. And so it goes back to the work done partly by the Commonwealth Partnership for Technology Management. In other words, being a, a meeting place for people to come together and to share ideas. In this case, it was a question of dialogues. So it's very difficult to try to work out how valuable the Commonwealth is because its real strength depends on the exchange of ideas rather than working as an organisation. But if you were to say, well... Would it be a good alternative to the European Union? My response is no. Because with the European Union, you have a union, you have a clear organisation, you have ways of um, sort of uh, conducting trade, etc. But it also makes sense geographically because all the countries are next to each other yep. in one big block. Yep, whereas the Commonwealth is dispersed around the world. Um, but it is interesting that countries that resign from the Commonwealth later seek to rejoin Fiji, uh, Zimbabwe, Countries that were never in the Commonwealth, such as the Portuguese territories in Africa, have now applied to join the Commonwealth. That's interesting. So quickly, just just tell us Zimbabwe and Fiji. Why, what were the reasons there? Well, they were expelled because <laughs> of the um, uh, of revolutions that had taken place. Robert Mugabe um, was someone who was um, obviously a very brutal dictator. Originally, the Commonwealth was very active in the transfer of power from the white minority regime of Ian Smith to a democratic election, but then that process was hijacked by the person who won that election, Robert Mugabe, and Mugabe then kept on keeping on in power. So he started out very well, but then just became addicted to power, which is the problem, of course, with African leaders or leaders generally worldwide, not just Africa. So Zimbabwe had to leave the Commonwealth and Fiji left after one of the coups in Fiji, but Mm. Fiji is now rejoined and Zimbabwe. Why and how did they go about that? Well, they just wrote a letter to the Commonwealth Secretariat saying, can we rejoin? There's obviously a bit of negotiation that goes on before the formal application is made. Of course, but did um, did Zimbabwe, that's the more fascinating one for me, but did Zimbabwe try and get back into the Commonwealth with Mugabe in power? No, no, no. And it was quite clear that um, as long as Mugabe was in power, that Zimbabwe would be on the outer. But then with the transfer of power from Mugabe to Emerson Managua, then you end up then with this change. I see. Right. Okay, so brief history of the Commonwealth, Keith, and for anyone who is listening and and, and might not necessarily know how it came about. So it came about by accident, really. Only the British would have created the Commonwealth. Uh, <laughs> hey, you are one. You and I am go, one. I, I so get that tone I, out it's of not a racist comment. I was speaking <laughs> about my forebears. So the British created an empire by accident. Right? They never set out to, to dominate the world. They set out to do trading deals. And the instructions, like, for example, King George III to the people coming to settle in Australia in 1788 was do a deal with the locals, which is why we've ended up with all this problem about Terra Nullius because 
the people who came out here in 1788 said, oh, there's nobody here to do a deal with. But, of course, in, in New Zealand, there were Maori. And so you had the Treaty of Waitangi. We still don't have a formal treaty with the Indigenous people here. So the British were simply saying, we're going to do deals. We're, we're in the, the business of Britain is business, right? Um, and it was becoming the, the workshop of the world, and there was this search for markets. So the British ended up, in an absent-minded way, acquiring real estate, and they ended up acquiring a huge amount of, as I say, it's 20% of the world's land area is covered by the Commonwealth. It's, it's an immense area of 7 billion people, 2.5 billion are within that Commonwealth area. So the British acquired all these territories. They had various levels of status. But they're all basically colonies, but some were uh, seen as more substantial than others, the, the major ones the old white Commonwealth would be Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and also, to a certain extent, South Africa. Um, and then you have the African colonies, etc. At the end of World War II, it was clear that India wanted to go its own way. India was going to be broken up between India, Pakistan, um, and so clearly there were changes in the air. So the Labour government in London in the late 1940s, 70 years ago this year, decided to start creating a new association for the countries. They would retain the Queen as the head of the Commonwealth. So the Queen is a very busy woman. She's the Queen of Great Britain. She's the Queen of Australia. She's the Queen of Canada. She's the Queen of New Zealand. So they would be based around the royal family and it would enable people to be able to maintain links across boundaries. What Philip Murphy in his book The Empire's New Clothes argues is that most people in Britain were never really aware of the Commonwealth. Um, they were aware of citizens coming into Britain from the Commonwealth. So at the end of World War II, there was a shortage of labour. And so uh, there were advertising campaigns in the West Indies saying, come to sunny Britain. And, of course, if you, the people who went over in the late 40s were the ones who worked in the hospitals and the factories driving the buses, etc., so that you get this influx from the old Commonwealth countries because they were British citizens, they were British subjects. So they're able to go to London without worrying too much about immigration because they're all seen as part of this giant British family that lived around the world. So the Commonwealth grew out of that, but it was never really a formal organisation as such. And people move in and out of it. It has, as I've said, some valuable agencies. One is it's encouraged educational links. Another one is it's encouraged um, scientific links, or technological links, etc. So there are some interesting jobs, what's called functional cooperation. So one level of cooperation is political cooperation. So political cooperation is when you bring the politicians together. Functional cooperation is when you bring the technical experts together. And they tend to be less concerned about politics. So functional cooperation is when you bring educationalists together or health experts together and they will then discuss a common problem. And so the Commonwealth has been very useful from that point of view. But it's no alternative to the European Union. And so going back to the European Union and the Brexit vote of 2016, you would have to say that, in fact, people who voted for Brexit thinking they could re-establish the Commonwealth have got it all terribly wrong. And in the meantime, of course, Australia has developed links with China.
This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter talking about the viability of the Commonwealth because it feels like it's a little bit old school and a little bit irrelevant these days, uh, especially in light of the Brexit vote, Keith, as you yeah. were just saying, in 2016. That's right. So the vote took place in 2016 and it's worth bearing in mind the vote, although the debate was over the economics of being in the European Union, um, the people who voted to remain were, man, were motivated by money. In other words, they could see being in the European Union was such a great thing from the point of view of making money, particularly people in South East England, around the City of London, etc. The people who voted to leave were motivated by cultural factors. And so the cultural factors were simply that we're sick of all these foreigners. The second most common language in England is Polish. So you've got so many workers who are coming in from Poland to do the work and doing the work because the English don't want to do it, but the English are saying, Let, let's try to reclaim our old heritage and let's go back to being English or British. And so what is interesting is that that sort of point of view is one that's carried across. But what I find fascinating is the Commonwealth is a giant multicultural organisation. The new Prime Minister, Theresa May, on her first overseas journey, made a journey to India. As if to emphasise, yes, global Britain, to use her phrase, which sounds good but it's empty, global Britain will now seek to re-establish ties with people outside the European Union. We're going to become much more global in our mindset. God. So she visits India. But you know, a lot of people in the UK would say, well, we don't want the Indians here either. We don't want the Poles, but we certainly don't want the Indians either. So you've got real problems. And poor old Britain is really very confused as to what it wants to achieve with its Commonwealth. Here in Australia, we, of course, are active members of the Commonwealth. When the royal family come out here, you get always a lot of media attention, as we will do with the arrival of the royal baby, etc. Um, so there's a lot of interest at the personal level with the royal family. But you'd have to say, how does the average Australian know that they're a member of the British Commonwealth. And how has the British monarch changed in terms of their involvement with the Commonwealth? Because they have been forever on tours of the Commonwealth, strengthening ties and more yep. maintaining ties, really. How has that shifted over time? Because they seem to be still pretty present, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And the Queen takes the Commonwealth very seriously, um, as did her late father. So King George also, because the changeover occurred during his time as King, King Emperor, Within the Queen, who's now the longest-serving head of state pretty well in the world. And so she has taken the, the Commonwealth seriously and she likes being linked with the Commonwealth Secretariat, etc. So she certainly sees herself in this figurehead role as the head of the Commonwealth. But from a political point of view or an economic point of view, it's very difficult to say, well, what does the Commonwealth actually achieve? at the level of politics or economics, because it is so diverse. You know, it's, it's Britain which has its outlook on the world, but then you've got all of the African countries who have a very different outlook on the world. We saw that most recently in the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting dealing with um, gay issues. So the British now permit gay marriage, whereas that's illegal in our Commonwealth countries in Africa, with the exception of South Africa. Um, and you can only think of the, what penalty it carries, by the way. Exactly. Torrent. Um, yeah. But you see that, so you had a, a statement which the British were anxious to get through 
the most recent conference, which was held in London, and you've got a lot of African countries saying, look, this is going to cause us problems when we get back home. So it, it's because of the diversity of the world is represented in the Commonwealth, it makes it very difficult to get one agreed point of view on anything. Fascinating stuff. And as always, we could probably talk for another hour on this, by the way, but we can't because that would be very boring for most people. We just, we like to have snapshots here, don't Absolutely. we, Absolutely. <laughs> this has been Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.